0: Imagine the moment when fast food first appeared on the scene. It was revolutionary. People could grab a meal in mere minutes, something unheard of in an era when even simple meals required time and preparation. The magic of this efficient service quickly spread, setting a new standard and raising the floor for what was considered quick good food. However, as more fast food joints mushroomed across cities and towns, the novelty wore off. Each burger, each fry began to taste like a reflection of the other. In this world where speed was king, but uniqueness was lost, Master Chefs saw an opportunity. They took some of the same technology that churned out countless burgers and fries and used it sparingly, blending it with their craft. The result? Gourmet dishes that carried the efficiency of fast food, but were crafted with an artistry and uniqueness that stood above the rest. In the ever-evolving realm of B2B SaaS, we see a parallel story. Technologies, especially AI, once revolutionary, have started to become commonplace. The floor for what is considered innovative is constantly rising. And with this, there's a risk of everything starting to feel the same. Just as in the world of food, the challenge here is to not just use the available tools, but to use them in ways that stand out, that offer something unique and valuable to the audience. Enter Kieran Flanagan, CMO at Zapier, a maestro in the SaaS domain. Kieran understands the balance between leveraging the power of AI and ensuring that a company's offerings don't just blend into the background. His insights, strategies, and innovative approaches have guided businesses to shine brightly in a marketplace that's getting more crowded by the day. Join us in today's episode as we explore the landscape of B2B SaaS, Delve into the challenges and opportunities presented by the commoditization of AI, and learn from Kieran Flanagan on how to be the master chef in a world filled with fast food options. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Kieran Flanagan speaks with Paddle's Andrew Davies about rising above the AI commodity wave. They talk about challenges in upgrading products, automation in tech stacks, the future of content, the role of creators in modern marketing, and adapting to change in the SaaS landscape. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest's advice.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, currently over at Zapier, CMO there, kind of lead in marketing and growth. I like to think of Zapier as the connective tissue between apps, helps you to customize your software to your needs, do no code, build apps, and do all that as you scale. So that's my kind of Pitch. I'm sure if you go to the website. It's for much better than that.
2: And one, you also, for those who don't know you um, and your journey, give us a couple of the bits of breadcrumb of how you got to Zapier.
1: My career originated. I started my career as a software developer, like at a college with a computer science degree. Was not very good as a software developer. Although I do think like I would be a better software developer today than I was back then because I just got stuck into the wrong segment of building, which I was internal apps through Unix, which is like not the most exciting thing to do. Then I you know, found my way into marketing because I ended up working on this e-com store and I was like really obsessed by how they were going to get visitors and buyers to that e-com store and they hadn't really thought through that. They were like much more engineering led, build it and they would come. And then it turned out like after six months, no one came. The thing failed. And that just really like struck me as wow, like being able to like scale something, build an audience, find figure out how to get people to use these things is really important. So started a career in marketing, started really in performance marketing, then went to help companies, build out their international business, did that Salesforce, Marketo, ended up in HubSpot, spent 10 years in HubSpot, building out the international business, building out the product-led growth business, helping to scale the customer demand engine, led the acquisition of a company called The Hustle, built out the HubSpot Media Network, and did a bunch of other things in there. And then ended up going to Zapier to kind of lead marketing and growth. Uh, I really like the intersection of like growth and marketing, so get to do a bunch of fun work over there. Let's
2: firstly just stop on Zapier. So you've joined that business at a super interesting time as open. AI has launched a bunch of apis that thousands of companies are building on and zapier's got a really interesting place in that ecosystem I assume you know you had a, a lot of forward visibility on what that was looking like but I'd love to hear from you like what zapier's role is in that ecosystem and how you see that playing out
1: I joined the, at a really interesting time because I was already like pretty deep into the AI space and really trying to think through like how this is going to change the way people do jobs, like just the job of a knowledge worker, going to change the way that we actually use software. Like there were some really good apps when I had joined Zapier. That we're trying to like reskin how we use software, like use the entire tech stack through a chat engine, and so you you never even had to use like UI experience of a of a software app, which would com- fundamentally change like how we actually do uh, SaaS, do knowledge work. And so when I joined Zapier, one of the things Zapier is is it's like very engineer led, very product led, chips a lot. And so they had a bunch of like AI features into the wild very quickly. They had we had our chat plugin, we had a bunch of other things, and we had this like influx of users who really wanted to figure out how to make AI actionable for their company. I think that's the real thing I took away from it is like people are trying to figure out how to interject, inject AI into their current workflows. So we see a lot of people create these kind of custom workflows and now they are able to like add an AI step into there. Good example is like I can create a custom workflow to pull tickets from customer support and then I can now add an AI step to summarize all those tickets, send me, send them to someone else. And now you can actually have AI do the qualification of them, but also to actually help some of them through chat experience. And so I think that's the main thing was you can see people trying to figure out, okay, how do I make, there's just a lot of hype. We're in like the real hype cycle of AI. And I think the thing that we try to focus on is like, how can we help AI be actionable for a business? Like how can we actually help bring in AI to a business so you can actually uh, use it within your current workflows? Some of the use cases that we've seen that are most popular, obviously we see a lot of people using it for content, for marketing, to see a lot of people using it for really interesting customer support use cases, seen a lot of people use it for a lot of interesting sales Cases. the one hesitancy we're seeing people run up against is just like how how confident am I to put this into like customer facing parts of my workflow, like my go-to-market experience because AI still hallucinates so you can change the settings to make sure that 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 comes down a lot. And so I think people are still trying to get over the hump of like it's in the background starting to do a lot of the work and am I okay actually interacting with a lot of
2: my customers? I know one thing you've talked about is, you know, the best marketers are using tools like Zapier and the new generative AI APIs to you know become more technical, to suddenly start being builders. And that's what we've experienced at Paddle. Like a bunch of my team have suddenly become much more technically competent than they ever were before. Talk to us about that and how you see marketers suddenly embrace the new technical chops that they have at their fingertips.
1: Yeah, I think deep down we all want to build things because software out of the box is limited. Like it just is. Every person has a unique use case they want to use software for that's unique to that business, right? Like most businesses yeah, we, you have a standard eighty percent of the software covers all of the use cases, and there's twenty percent that you yourself want to customize to your business. And out of the box software is not going to get you that twenty percent. There's a appetite to like build customization into every go to market experience, every kind of ex- company experience that we have. And if you look at the evolution of how this is done in the past, the number of people who ha- can do that has grown over time, right? So when the, the internet became popular, in allowed us to like, do some customization, but you're limited by engineers, which is why we have way more things in in the universe that we can actually build because our you know our limitation is engineers then no code actually helped you to do some of that without actually needing to actual code but you had to learn how to do all these kind of tools now ai kind of allows you to just learn english language and be able to like build and customize things and i think deep down the best Marketers, Like how do you get an edge over the other marketers? It's really hard today. Like most marketers are experienced. Like SaaS is not a new thing. Technology is not a new thing. The thing that I still think you can get an edge on is like how quickly you can adapt new tools, how quickly you can adapt these custom tools before they become universal, before they become really, really popular. And if you could be at the bleeding edge of like integrating these tools, customizing these tools, making your go-to-market much, much better because you've built something custom for your audience, that to me is still like something that you have you know certain marketers have the unique advantage on me personally like I was playing with AI I'm like I'm doing stuff that I would have always loved to have done but I didn't think I was like very good at it which is like downloading repos from GitHub, running things on my laptop, having AI fix bugs for me. Like I've been running all the kind of new AI, different GPT agents. I have like someone who can assist me like fixing things where like previously it was like really hard to do that.
2: So let's stay on the topic of marketers and AI for a second. Um, I love the conversation between you and Patrick on the three types of marketers and how they survive AI. So I think you had lazy copy and paste marketers, proactive copy and paste marketers, and original thinkers. Talk us through, you know, how you see each of those different groups face the... The AI wave.
1: So to go through that, kind of, there's different categories. Like the lazy copy and paste marketer is like read something, replicate it for my company, but i get it really badly. Most, like even great marketers are in that second bucket, which is like proactively replicate things, but customize it for my business. And then you have the original thinkers who wrote the post to begin with, right? Like they actually wrote the post that everyone else is like copying from. That They are very far and few in between. And again, the thing I always point to is this is not 10 years ago. Like the internet has been around for some time. Marketing online has been around for some time. All of the channels that we kind of live in have been around for some time. People are just getting better and better at their jobs. And so actually being an original Thinker is much harder than it used to be. There's just like harder to come up with things that have not been done before. So everyone kind of gets pushed into that second bu- bucket. I think if you look at what AI does, the first bucket, which is the lazy copy and paste marketer, they just they just get blown away, right? Like you, I can actually do lazy and copy and paste through AI AI tools, right? I don't actually need you to do that. And so you have like one marketer can do many marketers' lazy and copy and paste job. The middle bucket, I think, becomes much more saturated, much more quicker. Which is like I can take something now and then I can use AI to customize it really quick for my business. And so what does that actually mean for a marketer? I think historically, if you were the first person to take something replicated and customized for your business, you're in that fast follower group and you have this huge advantage before everyone else catches up. Like the timeline between the laggards in marketing and you being in that fast follower, more proactive bucket was quite high. Like you have maybe 12 months, maybe 24 months before everyone starts to like commoditize that thing. I think AI commoditizes things much faster. Like I've seen it. I've seen some really cool outreach programs someone showed me and then like an AI agent can actually go do that and everyone is doing the same thing and then everyone's like well this isn't you I'm not going to react to it because I've seen it a million times and so I think the middle bucket gets bigger but gets saturated much much faster and gets much more uh, diluted in terms of like impact there's still always going to be a place for original thinkers like original thinkers are the people who can take the AI technology and really think about how I customize it and do unique things for my audience and I think that's going to really skew towards the creative thinkers who are now able to take those creative thoughts and build something really awesome for their customers for their go to market experience
2: let's go to the other side of the conversation from the marketer to the buyer in a world where AI can spew out perfectly customized or personalized messages for thousands of people at the same time. You know, how does this affect the buying process and is the world of outbound selling dead?
1: This is a good one to like noodle on or like debate. You know, it could be that we actually revert back to things that seem outdated or antiquated because we went from very like human to human purchasing, uh, which is expensive and then digital allowed us to like programmatically scale many of those things and make them much more touchless. AI is going to make those things ubiquitous, right? So everyone's going to market will, in terms of like digital, will look and feel the same. I think it's going to be like, really easy for someone to have like a great buying experience online from the personalized outbound emails to the personalized chat to the website customizing itself around the data it's collected on you to you being able to like go buy that thing touchlessly by going back and forth with an agent AI agent asking the questions, getting all your questions answered, likely to the buying the software and having the agent customize it for your needs, like even being able to like customize the settings of it, provide you custom onboarding material, all of that stuff will be done through AI, which means like everyone probably has a very good experience. And so how do you differentiate on those things? And maybe it's like we have to go back to people will be craven to like interact with humans. Like I actually want to talk to a human. I actually want to spend some time to, to a human. So I think the buyer expectations will go, will only get higher. The experience that I expect from a company is going to get higher. Like I'm not going to forgive a company for having a really subpar buying experience. But I do wonder like how interactions with people during that buying experience will actually it will, will be valued because I think for a lot of us, It seems like heaven to actually be able to buy things and never talk to a human. But I just don't know if that's reality or not, right? I I don't know if that's the way we're going to feel when that actually happens.
2: On that, as marketers, I think we're all delighting in the fact we can automate some more customised and valuable experiences. On the other side of the fence... Like what are some experiences you point to where you know it's automated and it's auto-generated for you, but you've actually appreciated it and enjoyed that?
1: I think this is a really good question, right? Like when you know something's personalized for you by a machine, do you actually think it's personalized? Do you feel like it's personal to you? You don't. I really don't think you do. I always tell Patrick this, like Patrick Campbell who came on the, who's been on the, my pod a couple of times. I always love his emails from like, I always love his emails. They, I always like because I know him, right? And I always go to like reply to them. I'm like, geez, like I obviously he's, these are automated emails. And so in that case, like, I think when people understand that these things are being automated for them, like what, what do people appreciate about their personal touch? They appreciate the personal touch. They appreciate that you actually spend some time and effort to really understand them and create something that is meaningful for them, right? To a certain extent, like, you know, they don't expect you to go and like handcraft an email and like, you know, spend hours and hours and hours. There's a certain amount of value they attach to you spending some time to try to deliver them a really great experience. So we have to ask ourselves if everybody is able to get those personalized experiences, whether they're through email or chat or web or, or website, and everyone kind of understands it's being done by an a machine. I don't know if people value them as much, which comes back to why I think the digital go-to-market experience could be very commoditized and what actually could be valuable is how you integrate that personal touch in other ways whether it's through your community whether it's through some sort of customer account management or customer success like i don't actually know what it is i would be lying if i knew what it is but i don't know i'd be interested in your thought which is like it's a really good question like has there ever been something that you've gotten that's personalized that you know is through a automated experience through code and then felt like, wow, I feel like super special because you went to the effort of doing this for me.
2: It feels like in the maturity of marketing automation, whether it's even with DM gifting and a whole bunch of other stuff or people mimicking handwriting at scale for that kind of outreach that's personalized, it feels like what we're playing on so often is people not understanding that we've got a tool that's one click ahead of what their recognition is and yet the mass adoption of gen ai raises the level of understanding of what's going on behind the scenes in a way that you know the kimono is opened in a way that it perhaps hasn't done before in certain other areas
1: yeah i do like and again i'll argue i'll argue against myself a little bit like do i let's take the actually handwritten notes because i think that that's a really good example where there's these companies where you can have marketing automation workflow set up and trigger a handwritten note and it goes to that person feels very personal and so the question would be that person reads that note and knows that that was created through like this automated function that you had no real interaction with other than setting up the workflow, do I feel like you've taken the time to like really do something for me? So I think you get some level of dopamine hit because you've taken the time to probably, at least you've taken the time to like handwrite a note in an automated fashion that speaks to me, right? So you've tried to understand me as a customer. Content, being able able to write and communicate is a skill that is only going to increase in, in value over time. If it's not already the most important thing, I think it is like the only, the most important skill to learn. It's going to continue to be the most important skill to learn with AI. And so like how you craft a message and how you can actually elicit emotions from someone through the written word will still matter. But I just think that the dopamine hit you get or the you know, the feeling of like being important that you get probably diminishes over time because now you've got instead of like one company figuring it out and sending you a handcraft note, fifty companies have sent you like this amazing handcraft note. You're like, oh, the first one's cool, the second one's fine, the third one fine. And they're like, Jesus, stop sending me handcraft <laughs> like handwritten notes, right? I know I know what you're all doing, right? And I think that's the thing is when you popular when you commoditize something, it just doesn't feel the same.
2: Coming back to your three categories of marketers, I think the question that will be in a bunch of listeners' minds, whether they're marketers or whether they're founders, is how do I become that original thinker? So what's your task? and insight do you put in front of people of how they can improve their own thinking and their own writing?
1: Like original thinkers, I actually debated this with Kip recently. It was the CMO of spot. I don't know if there's anything you can do. To, I think trying to like, I don't know how you make someone a better original thinker. Like I was trying to f- figure out. I was sitting there yesterday for hours trying to come up with, and you post on something that I wanted to do. And I was like, how do I have some like a real, and it's like in a space that's really commoditized. And I was trying to, how do I have a, I always like to try to think of like original thoughts or something someone hasn't said before. And it's this pretty hard thing to manufacture. Like I didn't get anywhere, but then I would be walking my dogs or doing something random and it would come to me. Right. Like it, it seems that like the original thoughts I think you can be inspired by other you can I think if you consume the right things and you spend enough time with the right people they can elicit those thoughts from you but I think certain people are just better than it than others like I think there are there there is the original thinkers and they're just better than that than the others. And I've seen it up close. Like I've seen people who are very good original thinkers and I couldn't like reverse engineer how they do that. I can reverse engineer why people are the proactive replicators. Like people who are just like really quick at taking something, customizing it and being able to replicate it. And I think they're incredibly valuable. That's actually what most companies, they're they are the people that are making most companies successful today. The people who can actually do that. The original thinkers I think are just these, they just have that extra spark to go from like the they need to they have that extra spark to take that leap to do something that no one has ever thought of. i also think that they have the ability not to be part of it is like they're just not scared to fail like they're they have way more confidence to do something they're not scared to fail but i don't know how easy it is to reverse engineer that i think writing is a good example like the difference between someone who has who writes a book and makes someone change the way they feel about something and someone who writes really well but it's something you've heard many times before, but maybe it makes you feel like, oh, I didn't understand that as well. Now I understand it a little bit better. Like it's pretty, that gap is like, I think is pretty large and I don't know how you actually close that gap or help someone close that gap. A bunch of the
2: CMOs I know who have got kind of outbound enterprise time motions are all asking the questions on how they automate their BDR function. So before we move to PLG, let's stop on kind of the sales assist or sales-led go-to-market approach. How are you thinking about that? How How are you advising people about reinventing in this new world their, their BDR, SDR teams and their go to market
1: for the most part if we step through like what are the things that people feel they can automate today that they had not been able to automate six to 12 months ago like i think on the qualification part there's nothing new there like we were always able to like find signals within product find signals within website interact like find signals and a mix of fit and engagement. For the most part, what I've seen people want to automate away is the personal, like the messaging, right? Like that actually we can craft the outreach for you. Like there's a there's a company I invested in that's doing like really cool things where you can pull in some data on a person through their LinkedIn or something. And it crafts a really good message for you. Much better than any sales rep would write because they just wouldn't take, they, they wouldn't have the time to write a thousand of those emails. They wouldn't, and the copy's really good. Like a lot of sales reps are just not good at writing. That outreach part, which is like, it's personal to you. I think is something that most people are trying to automate. And what I'm trying to tell people is if we take that slice of it, there's a moment in time where that's going to work much, much better. Like I've seen it. I've seen companies who are getting like really good return rates on on that more personal email messaging scale. But again, coming back to our conversation when everyone does it, the results diminish over time. That's an example of, like, I'll give you a good example where we're talking about this, like, replicate an original thinker. So that's an example of, like, someone who can replicate something really fast. Like, they can take new systems, they're on the bleeding edge of software, they can take existing playbooks and they can customize them with that new technology, right? They are, like, really valuable people. You have a certain amount of time before anyone else catches up to you because they're just not at the bleeding edge. They're not using the new software. They're not figuring out how to do it. The original thinker, like, G, who's over at Hyper Partners, was like, growth partner for many a companies. He's Talked through this example for Ramp. He was in the podcast and he gave this example. Like he's a good example of an original thinker, right? He went through this process with Ramp. He's given this use case publicly where they did the outreach part, personalize, replicate proactively be at the bleeding edge of technology, but they did some original thought where they looked to see where someone's, where this person had gone to college or CFOs. And they looked to see where this person got to college. Then they actually said, Hey, like I'll bet against your team. It's playing in the next week. Do you want to take that free bet? Right. So that's like apparent original thought with bleeding edge technology. Right. And that's like the the difference between those two things. The other thing that I've seen people want to do is like the qualification in the PLG company. And then the, the kind of triggered emails through a BDR. And so again, it's all, I don't know what you're seeing, but from it's all of the personalized messaging. Like for the most part, when people say they want to replace their BDRs, it's like I can qualify you better, I can get engagement rates better through an automated AI sequence than I can through like mass adoption of or, or you know mass usage of BDRs. I agree with all of that. I
2: guess the other thing that I think is interesting here though is when you've got the ability to automate a bunch of that functionality, the persona that you're reaching out from becomes really important. And in a world where, you know, creators are building following, doing that all on behalf of the founder or or a subject matter expert within the business feels a huge amount more productive than doing it on behalf of a, you know, maybe fantastic, but early in their career BDR who's trying to learn the ropes. So there's also that persona piece of it of who's doing the outreach that I think is really interesting here um, that we've got to kind of understand. Is, is it not the credible persona plus the automated outreach that gives the killer results rather than just one piece of or the other?
1: Yeah, we, the early days of HubSpot, we had Brian's name on everything. At some point, Brian asked to take his name of everything because he was getting so many replies and emails people sent. And then like, and so, and then again, it goes back to like, it's, uh, you know, there was a point then people realized this isn't from Brian. Like, so again, there's just that part of it, which is what is their value when that person knows that person, you know, the CEO is not really, they understand how the, the thing is being made. The other part that I've seen on the SDR front is like what AI is really good at is they can really set, they can really tee up SDRs for like really good calls because they, they can pull in information around an account and they can, format it, articulate it, have talking points, pull data from like gone calls and just have like this incredible like here's your next call, here's everything you need to know about this account. That is like incredibly advantageous for a sales rep.
2: And then the ability as you've talked about to can think about micro products, how can that be pushed back as a auto created bit of value in some kind of experience whether interactive or static that that person can consume outside of a sales call as well, which I think is really interesting to see people experiment with.
1: I think like we're all being like all knowledge workers are going to be forced to be system builders, right? Like when you create one of these processes that you'll want to like systemize it, build it and scale it. And I think that is, if you think about AI is just another form of automation and I think it's going to make automation a must-have skill for knowledge workers. Like I think the two most important skills for knowledge workers in the future are understand how you could automate much more of your job in creative ways and write.
2: So before we do a hard switch into a couple of other topics, there'll be a bunch of early stage founders listening to this who haven't yet built out their go-to-market. So then the enviable position of having a clean slate with all of these new tools at their fingertips. And, you know, Traditional practice two years ago, three years ago, five years ago would have been okay. You know, we need to get a marketing person in, or a growth person in, hire a pair of BDrs, and go from there. What would your advice be to someone who's maybe got you know a, a little bit of a, a PLG motion, but is trying to build an outbound sales team on top using all of the tools available? Are they hiring anyone at all? Who are they hiring, um, and how do they think about building out that that
1: go-to-market organization? I think there's four. This is a sweep in generalization. There are four stages of a PLG business for the most part. If you if you're a true like bottoms-up PLG business. And so you have your initial PLG self-serve business and that business is marketed to end users and end users can adopt buy and use the product and for hopefully if you're like a successful plg business that goes really well and you build momentum and you start to like really scale that business the next part is you start to invest in inbound direct sales and that that to me is like okay well we have all of this self-serve demand it's working really well people are coming in they want to use the product they they use the product they activate we get them onto the value and then they upgrade but there's if we just put To contact sales there and chat there, there's going to be some inbound demand because there's certain people who just want to talk to a human and. They have some questions about maybe they're your questions about your pro plan, your enterprise plan, and then we can actually close them. For the most part, that isn't like a traditional SDR team. It's like a BDR team. It can be, an, we called at at HubSol, uh, an inbound success coach team. It's like more of a quick, high-velocity deal. It's not that you are now deciding, I'm going to start to move up the market. It's just like, I'm going to service the demand that's there, that's already there, but actually wants to interact with someone. Now, the thing to watch out for is, because you're applying human capital, you would want to either close that really fast or see the average contract value higher than the self-serve business or it's going to be hard to like make the math work. But I think I think in terms of that, you can automate a bunch of the stuff in chat. You could automate a bunch of the email that goes out to them when they, when they hit the contact sales form. But you still may actually have to have some amount of calls because there's questions that can just be answered by a person, get them on a the call, close, get them onto the pro and enterprise plans. So that's, so we've gone through the end user self-serve. Now we're still the end user for the most part, inbound direct sales, maybe selling to some more teams there. And then we, layer on product-led sales and product-led sales is really just expansion, right? Like it's like, okay, well, I have an existing user base. I'm building these kind of like enterprise features, which really just means that IT feels safe that I can consolidate the, I can consolidate the plan onto this, you know, platform. Like me, the IT person, you have all the things I want. So now we'll just consolidate and use your enterprise plan. And again, I'm not purposely, I'm not building an enterprise product, but I'm building the IT features so you can consolidate all of these users onto a singular account. And that product-led sales motion is just like, how do I get expansion through my existing user base. And that then starts to look much more like a kind of, it's not like an SDR outbound team, but it's like more like a product-led sales team. And I'm using my product signals to build product-qualified leads, product-qualified accounts. I'm looking for the signals to be able to say, this is a great account. They've got multiple users. Here's how we sell them. We can sell them a team plan or we can consolidate everything to our enterprise plan. And we try to make that work. And I think in terms of there that if a founder's got the they feel very good about the end user they've got the in brand direct sales motion then they move on to the product led sales motion I think that you still need to have some version of a sales team but it not it is not your traditional top down sales team because they are selling into existing customers they are selling into existing users they are selling into existing accounts and so you need to have uh, a team that I think is separate from what you'll need to do when you need to build a top-down sales motion. So you can call it a SER team, but I think people get confused that like a top-down sales team and a product-led sales team are just the same thing, and they're not. It's like a different motion, and it's a different thing to actually learn how to do. And I think when you've got that working really well, and again, within there, there's like a bunch of things we can do with AI that we were not able to do in the past. You know, the qualification, the outreach, the personalized emails, like all of those things do get better with AI. And then the last thing what companies do is, okay, like we have some meaningful momentum here. We're starting to get dragged up market through this product-led sales motion. Let's build a real enterprise skew, go after the enterprise market and try to displace whoever's up market. And then you have your like traditional top-down sales motion. And now you do need your like SDRs and you need your you know all of the things you would expect to build in that top down sales motion. I think where PLG businesses for the they go there's lots of places you, it can go wrong. But I think what I've seen even with our experience in HubSpot, we started oddly with a top down motion in some ways and then like build into the PLG motion product led sales motion. But those those two things aren't the same. So when I spend a lot of time with founders or uh, and the companies I do advisory work for, or just in general spending time with people who are in PLG, I feel like they misconstrue those two things like product led sales and I like I've done I I hired a VP of sales. They've done top down sales. They'll just come in and make this product that sales thing work and it's actually pretty different. They're like somewhat different from each other.
2: So let's just extend that a bit further because I've heard you also talk a little bit about unsquishable PLG businesses and you know there's often PLG businesses that want to do the we're going up market and we're going down market at the same time. Now, fighting on those two fronts can be really hard. I think the Dropbox example is one that you've used this instructive. So talk to us a bit about unsquishable businesses and how you can be oh squishable businesses and how you can be unsquishable
1: yeah I think what happens so like if you go through if we go through like the the thing I just went through which is like hey the end user to the inbound, inbound direct sales to the peak product led sales to the top down motion which is like a true enterprise motion and so what happens is you have a company that has a core use base and that use base really loves it and that's bottoms up right and so that bottoms up motion has got you a ton of traction and you're doing really well but your average contract value is lower than you want you know if you want to keep growing at 30 40 percent that average contract value is too low churn and contraction is a problem and actually um the market is starting to be saturated in some ways right like you've you've grown extensively everyone is all these users are using your product and it just gets harder and harder to grow. And so you start to say, well, what I'll do is I'll start to move up market. So first of all, I think where a lot of businesses go wrong is like misunderstanding the product-led sales and the true enterprise top-down motion. But let's just say this company has not. So this company is like, okay, well, I'm going to continue to grow my base and now I'm going to try to move up market. And so the typical problem that you see in PLG businesses is first of all, the end users and the buyer for your enterprise SKU are totally disconnected right? You're like, well, I have all these users using the product, but the person who actually has to buy the enterprise SKU, they're not one and the same people. And that person who has to buy your enterprise SKU is actually not even using your product, right? They're not in there using the product. They don't see the value. And you're also just not an integral part of their tech stack. Like you're actually not an integral part of their tech stack. And so it's harder to sell that enterprise deal, but you're starting to like, so you're, You're running into that problem, right? You've you've actually miscalculated that actually that enterprise leap is way harder than you thought because you have to have an entire skew for that person, and it has to make sense for that enterprise buyer, right? And at the same time that you have kind of miscalculated how hard that is to do that leap between those two things, you have the lower end of the market being commoditized because capitalism is incredibly efficient, and now all of these new players have seen that you've done really well and are coming in to replicate. Some of your features, not all of them, because you're trying to build more because you're going up market, and they're trying to displace you in price. And sure, you're like, wow, like we're losing the thing we were synonymous with at the lower end of the market, and we're trying to like move up market. And we've kind of miscalculated the fact that even though we have all of these users and companies using the product, the leap between that and selling to this enterprise buyer is like far higher than we thought. Like the product is not there. We don't have the right enterprise skew. We don't have the right sales pitch. And there's like an incumbent up the an incumbent up there who's totally focused on that buyer. Like they've been focused from day one. The example I use was like Dropbox, and you know I don't mean to pick on Dropbox. I think they're an incredible company, but it's a really good example where they had incredible momentum in PLG, like one of the poster childs for PLG many users in companies using product executive buyer was much more it related and box specifically built for that it buyer and they branded themselves there and more kind of enterprise features got a foothold in there and then at the lower end you had like lots of companies add dropbox's features like google all these companies added dropbox features and started to commoditize them at the lower end and then it's hard for them not to get squished in the middle right i'm getting blocked out going up market because I miscalculated how big that leap is and I'm getting commoditized at the lower end and now I'm getting squished and what do I do do I try to go back down and like make sure I solidify my place here do I keep going up market and stretch my resources I'm trying to like do two different my go-to-market seems fragmented like my enterprise go-to-market is disconnected from my core go-to-market because that leap is higher and I'm selling to a new buyer Uh, it's a really hard Magic trick to like pull off.
2: Let's take one more hard switch, jumping on the uh, Dropbox theme. So I noticed that Elena, who will be a you know friend of both of ours, has just jumped in at Dropbox as the head of growth as interim. Yeah, cool to see what she's going to be doing at that business. And I also know, you know, I think she's released the first couple of episodes, but she has been doing a whole bunch of AI-generated podcasts and conversations where you know it's completely auto-generated from her back catalog, um, coming up with new topics. One area of, of expertise for you is is on the media side. You know, you're part of a media media purchase at HubSpot. Clearly got a big following across multiple ch- channels as well yourself personally. So in a world where there are a huge number of launches with Audience Plus and what Anthony's doing and people building on that platform with AI and auto generating content, what is the future for businesses that are building uh, a strategy that involves media? What does that look like in in today's world?
1: I've always thought that uh, creators, I think, creators will beat brands i think the media landscape will look much more creator-led than it looks brand-led if you look at all of the channels that have grown over the past five years or so they favor creators for the most part not brands if you look at creators we're seeing like creators build audience then launch businesses or launch vc firms or do what the Logan brothers are doing and become like wrestling phenomenons and boxing phenomenons. Like we're just seeing this whole other way to build audience and monetize that audience. The reason that we built, we acquired a media company. Like people really got the hustle acquisition wrong. The external perspective was, perception was we did it for leads. We did not do it for leads. Like there was no need for us to like buy that company. We, we generated a, a lot of leads. We wanted the media talent. We wanted to have like a true media presence. And that to me means that you have people who are much more creator-led or incredible content creators. The reason we launched the creator network on HubSpot was because we wanted to be aligned with all of the best creators because we believe creators will actually run content and media in the future. And I think AI is going to accelerate this because AI is going to cause people, what's going to get commoditized first? All the informational, educational content. You know, most brands have, especially in tech, have like, that's what they've leaned into to build audience. And I think in the future, the thing that is going to be required to like build and sustain audience is personality. Personality and original thoughts. Brands are not good at that. Because brands want to sit in the middle and be safe. I think creators will, for the most part, start to crush brands in all spaces in terms of content. And then it's going to be up to brands about how they either integrate creators into the company, partner with creators, make creators part of how they actually do content. Like Patrick, who's with Paddle, like he, you know, he's a founder. Slash creator, right? Like that to me is the profile of, you know, obviously he's a founder. I think Patrick's going to go work in a content too anytime soon because he's done pretty well for himself. But like he's the archetype of like the person that you would want to have in a SaaS business doing content, which is this perfect blend of truly understands the business. And has like a creator mindset. That's the person I would be trying to hire if I if I could.
2: Wholeheartedly agree. And, and as someone who you know has been driving my eleven year and uh, my nine year old son around to multiple spa shops to make sure he has the uh, latest prime drink, you know, I, I'm a big believer that these creators carry huge influence. So so how are you thinking about this for for Zapier? Like, how are you inspiring partnering with your own team to help them become creators and then creators in your kind of dev marketplace?
1: Yeah, we already work with a ton of influencers who use Zapier to do things within their business. Like most of our best performing videos are around some of of the kind of influential people who are showcasing Zapier in terms of AI. And we actually help promote and accelerate their content. So we find creators who are doing like really cool things with Zapier. We'll actually ask them to create videos. We'll put it into our paid advertising. We'll try to accelerate engagement on that. We are going to invest much more in video like I truly believe video is the medium for brands in the future I think text again because educational content will get very commoditized I think text itself might get very commoditized and also search engines are changing drastically so to me video is like a great place to try to excel and bring to life people within the company the company in itself and so we're going to invest much more in video and I think part of investing in video is like how we partner with creators and how we actually live on these platforms. Like people, like every SaaS brand and Zapier has been the same, but it has not focused on, and we haven't focused on video really at all. But like all SaaS brands, like if you just like, look look at just YouTube as a microcosm for what happens in terms of content for SaaS brands. It go to any SaaS brand and look at their YouTube channel. It's basically just take content from Teams, change title tags and thumbnail, put content on YouTube. That's how you win in the future, right? You actually have to have a YouTube channel that can stand up against other YouTube channels. Your competitors on YouTube are other YouTube channels, right? and so you need to have like a cool angle you need to have something that's differentiated you need to have personality you need to have like engaging things fun things and I think that's the skill set to learn is like how can I live and be relevant on these channels
2: Final question Kieran we've ran through a huge amount of conversation here that's that's going to be super valuable for the audience and I'm sure this one's not too hard for you a lot of what we've talked about is about how the commoditization of content via AI is going to raise the bar about how automation in our outbound and our PLG functions is going to raise the bar about how media and the production of that is going to raise the bar of expectation. And you've mentioned a few things there on one click ahead on how people can get ahead. What's the second click? Like when everybody is doing exactly what you said and they've got creators, they're now original thinkers, they're producing a video channel on YouTube that rivals other YouTube channels. Where do you see this going in a couple of years time when everyone is fast followed up to that?
1: I don't know. Like I'm trying to, uh, I actually would be lying. Like, I don't know. Like I'm trying to figure that out myself because I am i don't know if you feel the same thing, but like it definitely feels everything is changing. Like even just technology, like how, how does a SaaS brand not get commoditized if an AI can make the brand, the product itself somewhat irrelevant? Like if you see some of these companies who have added AI layers on top of software, then you can use the software without ever having to use the software. And how does that impact all of us? Because then it doesn't really matter what the brand is or the product is. User can go to AI and say, I want to do these things. And AI can go and figure out how to sign up to the software and automate that stuff and do that stuff for you. I think that you can imagine a future where your tech stack is like customized to you, like much more customized to you. You're not trying to stitch together out of the box software. You can just like create something much more custom explicitly for your needs. And so I think the way I think about this is like, first of all, you have to be like, it's a time. I think that there's these. Times where things are changing, and the people who who really do well are super passionate about change. They thrive in chaos. So I think working for a brand where there's there's ability like to push yourself, like you're working in a brand who wants to, to do the new, like who is like open for you to do the new things, to try the new things. Wh- who want more people of that type, who are not looking for the steady type steady state type like i think there's been times in sass where the steady state has been really good because there's you know that that's working and that's what everyone is doing and now we're in a time where i think it suits the people who are much more forward thinking chaotic willing to try things and i think trying to decide which one of those you are will probably be help you like deal emotionally with what's going on because i think it's, it's i think it's the like the chaotic time the forward thinking time the try thing time that's the time i love i'm just i actually get like very weird in times where a steady state i don't deal with it well i kind of like tr- i end up. Up starting like a hundred different personal projects because I feel like I'm not trying new things. And so I actually thrive in, the, in this time. Uh, and so I think if you are one of these people who want to that, make sure that you align yourself with people who are like trying new things. You can idea, idea it off and then actually work in a company where that behavior is kind of encouraged.
0: Shout out to Kieran for being on the show. Today, we talked about challenges in upgrading products, automation in tech stacks, the future of content, the role of creators in modern marketing, and adapting to change in the SaaS landscape. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.